You're listening to the Doc Lounge Podcast. This is a place for candid conversations with healthcare industry's top physicians, executives, and thought leaders. This podcast is made possible by Pacific Companies, your trusted advisor in physician recruitment. I am your host, Summer Gilbert, and my co-host today is one of Pacific Company's most talented recruiters, Mr. Travis Carlton. Today on the podcast, Travis and I are super excited. We are talking to Dr. John Robinson. He's a board-certified neurologist, and he has subspecialties in psychiatry, physical medicine, rehabilitation, and he's talking to us today about why he went into medicine, and we also pick his brain about his extensive knowledge and passion for the study of concussions. And that's why I actually have Travis as my co-host today. As a veteran, Travis has experienced multiple concussions, and I mean, who better to talk about the results and symptoms and all the, the things associated with that than him. So... Let's just jump right into it, and here's our conversation with Dr. John Robinson. So first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, Take us to the beginning. Why did you decide to go into medicine? Um, So my journey into medicine was one that started from a young age. I had plans to always continue on and go uh, through uh, education. Education was always going to be the way that I made it in life. My family, my mother was a teacher. My family always emphasized education and my uncles and aunts all went to college. And um, at the time, they weren't uh, the typical college student, not because they weren't intelligent or smart, but a lot of uh, Black people didn't go to college at that time because we grew up in the South. And of course, they grew up during a time of segregation and there weren't a lot of opportunities for people of color to go. But they always made a way. A lot of them served in the military or had academic scholarships in order to go to college. Mm-hmm. For myself, I've always been a person who really enjoyed learning facts, uh, learning different uh, things that were um, trivial at times, but a lot of things that I would know and other people wouldn't know. That always was something that uh, really entertained me was to know something that other people didn't know. So my journey into medicine really became serious around 11th grade. I had a teacher named Valerie Connor. She was a psychology teacher who introduced the basic neuroscience as a part of the class. And I found that that was something that really captured my interest. Before then, I had a real interest in why people treated each other the way that they did. I had an interest in why do people get addicted to the drugs? How do certain drugs work on the brain? Uh, why do people's personalities change when they have injuries to the brain? Mm-hmm. So me being a curious person and somebody who always wants to kind of know those little facts, it really was an environment that was conducive to me going into the field. And when I found that neuroscience was something that I could read about on my own and find pleasure in it, that's when I knew I had something going. And Ms. Connor was such a, a wonderful lady 
that she would very much instill in our class, which was comprised of people to, that would be in AP, advanced placement, all the way to people who would be in the very basic classes. So it was a hodgepodge of kids from all different levels. But what she did was she really coached us up to live up to our potential and even beyond some of our own ex expectations for people. So that sparked, sparked my interest. And then I loved her class so much. I took the AP version of her class the next year. And I, we had a careers in medicine talk one time or careers in psychology talk. And she wanted to really emphasize the different careers that you could have in, in medicine or in psychology. And she talked about being a psychologist who essentially is a person who listens to people's problems and gives them strategies to help them out with uh, illnesses that might affect their uh, their brain or their functioning. And then she talked about a, psych a psychiatrist who is a medical doctor who prescribes the medications. And she made it very clear to us that there's a difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist. And in my head, I knew that I wanted to take whatever interest that I had to the very highest level. I never wanted to have that what if. I never wanted to be some old man thinking, man, if I would have just stayed on this path, then I could have done this. But instead, I gave up on it and I didn't achieve that. Mm -hmm. So when I went to college, I was a psychology major. I continued with my interest in, in, in uh, psychology and neuroscience. And then I wanted to I had basically decided that I wanted to try and go to medical school. So I spent the next four years in undergrad, taking the undergrad classes required for medical school, uh, which basically biology, uh, biology, physics, chemistry, organic chemistry. <clears throat> and afterwards, I took a couple years to prepare for my MCAT and finish up my prerequisite classes. And then I uh, matriculated into medical school uh, shortly after that. Wow. And it sounds like you were really pulled towards uh, psychiatry and neurology just from the beginning. And a lot of times we talk to doctors and they go and they do their rounds and they're not sure what they're going to choose. So when you went into medical school, were you already really pulled towards that neurology route? No, absolutely. When I went into medical school, I knew that I wanted to either do psychiatry or neurology. There was really not a question of any other field. Mm -hmm. And I want to say probably my second year, I found out about a field called physical medicine and rehabilitation, which is a real cool hybrid. So it's like orthopedic surgery, except without the surgery, physical therapy mixed with neurology, but it's not the first part of neurology where you're diagnosing and seeing what's going on. You already know what's going on. You're interested in helping people recover and guiding their recovery. Yeah. And so those three fields were what appealed to me because they were heavily involved with neuroscience. When I did my clinical rotations, I found that the everyday practice of each of these fields was less, well, at least with psychiatry, it was less of what I envisioned in my, envisioned in my head. So I love to learn about it. And I love to learn about some of the other things, the nuances of it. But the clinical practice didn't really scratch that itch, if you will, for me. It was a field where I could just have a big appreciation for it. Now, mm -hmm. with neurology and PM&R, those two fields are like uh, two sides of the same coin. It's just one is, you know, before the injury where you're trying to diagnose, figure out what's going on and treat. The other one is where you already know what the injury is and you're trying to help continue to recover, uh, making braces and, and, and doing other things of that, uh, that sort. So I dual applied when I was applying for residency and I ended up in neurology because it, initially I was interested in neurorehabilitation. 
which I still maintain an active interest in. But once I got into uh, neurology, then I started to have some other interests, which played into my uh, enjoyment of psychiatry. If you will, psychiatry and neurology are both like sibling specialties. If neurology is the brother, then psychiatry is the sister. Did you ever think about going the neurosurgery route? Uh, neurosurgery was one is, is a very long path, long and arduous path. I really respect it, but doing procedures wasn't really my thing. If I was a more hands-on car guy or fixing stuff around the house when I was a child and that was my fulfillment, maybe. But the, you know, a surgeon's life is very, very rough, mm-hmm. especially neurosurgery. And for everything that I love, that's a lot of hands-on getting in there with tools. And it might be fun for some people, but it just wasn't something that really stuck out to me. Yeah, that's totally understandable. And I think that's the cool thing about being in neurology is that when you have a patient, you get to collaborate with neurosurgeons. And so, I mean, that's going to be part of your profession, even though you didn't go that route anyways. So tell me, um, I'm really interested about how you got into uh, wanting to study concussions. How did that start? Well, that kind of goes back again to personality changes and the psychiatry uh, interests early on. So I'm a very avid sports fan, love sports, have always my whole life and will probably uh, die uh a shortened life because of my fanhood for certain sports teams. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, it, in all seriousness, uh, so concussions are something that became very much to the forefront over the past, I would say probably about 10 years or so, maybe a little less uh, with the movie concussion and mm-hmm. CTE. So a lot of the athletes that I was a fan of, or at least a lot of the sports. So like I can remember junior Seau. Uh, the, one of the linebackers for the uh, for the uh, New England Patriots committing suicide. Just thinking about how sad his story was. But then you hear about all of these other athletes who are in uh, combat sports or in, in sports where people are running into each other. And my interest in neuroscience and my interest in sports are very strong. So to interface both of those in a medical sense really provides me a, a sense of interest so it is something that it catches my interest. And from what I've told you, a lot of things that catch my interest, I like to read about on my own. So when I started seeing all of these articles about the athletes and, and the military and uh, people that were having these changes, I like to try and read about those and really stay abreast of uh, the research and what the new developments are. Now, when I was in medical school, each summer was different. So between your first and your second year of medical school, it's basically like your last summer vacation. And I know that really sounds sad and depressing, but it's not quite your last one, but that's the way somebody put it to me. So in medical school, there's a very big emphasis for people to try and get their resume padded. And one of the things to try and push on you is research. Now, research isn't always something that is for everybody. I mean, if you don't have an interest in the clinical question, you're basically just doing very tedious work. If you don't like statistics, if you don't like these clinical questions, if you don't like the material, you can, you can get very much into the weeds and it can turn a lot of people off and it's just work, right? Yeah. But when I went to 
the VA hospital. So when I was in Charleston, I went to the Ralph H. Johnson uh, VA hospital and I got an opportunity to do uh, research with a gentleman named Ron Acherno. And he was doing research on telemedicine and uh, PTSD. So he was dealing with a lot of uh, veterans uh, that, that had post-traumatic stress disorder, but it was seeing if the talk therapy, which they did in person, could still be done over telemedicine and have the same effect. Because the key demographic, most of the Marines are Southern white males that live in rural areas. And they were having a problem with follow-up, especially with people uh, that have uh, issues with substance abuse. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to come out of the house. Uh, they're agoraphobic. So they have a fear of wide open places. Uh, they don't want to be in crowded areas. They always want to keep the exits, the doorways uh, available. You know, a lot of things that you're programmed to do in the military, but things that you're never really deprogrammed from. Mm -hmm. So when I worked with uh, at the VA, I got to see a lot of um, one horrifying things because you read about people's traumas. That was my whole thing. I was reading people's traumas and kind of putting things on a scale, but you have to understand what happened to them. And I saw a lot of things that were from a psychiatric side. So this was through the Department of Psychiatry. Uh, but what I saw was that people were being helped by telemedicine. Uh, the efficacy was the same with uh, telemedicine versus the in-person visits. But I recognized that a lot of the pathology was not only just from viewing something that was horrific, but it came from head injuries as well. So that in combination with my interest of sports, my interest of personality changes like cognitive neurology, uh, all of those things combined kind of gave me my interest in concussions. So I, you know, so to speak, I uh, am really into it. So I go to the virtual conferences that they've been having, try and stay uh, up to date on all of the materials and research that they've had and treat a lot of patients that have uh, post-concussive syndromes. Mm -hmm. Travis, listening into this, um, you know, as a veteran yourself, uh, Tell us about what are some symptoms that you still have today that you feel, you know, could have been from the concussions? Good thing we can edit this, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and a lot of the stuff that you were talking about, Dr. Robinson, about the VA, you know, I've been there. I've been to those mental health clinics. Um, and I would definitely prefer to do that remotely. Um, but, you know, a lot of the, the effects that I've had, and I've had concussions ever since I started playing football when I was in second grade. Um, so quite a few football. And then after high school, I joined the military and I was a, I was a paratrooper. Mm. Uh, jumped out of airplanes and, you know, I had a couple of concussions from, um, you know, landing, landing on the track, um, you know, hitting my head pretty hard. And then, you know, I was involved in uh, some explosions and, you know, mm -hmm. rolled vehicles and different things like that where it really can ring your bell. Um, one thing I've noticed in the last two years, probably most significantly, is short-term memory loss. Um, you know, there is a semi-significant, you know, amount of, of anxiety, um, which is strange. Mm -hmm. uh, strange thing to have don't really know how to explain it sometimes mm -hmm. um you know headaches and, and just not wanting to be in social environments a lot of time yeah so a lot of these symptoms can be explained by uh, a part of the nervous system is called the 
limbic system. The limbic system is involved with uh, fear, uh, emotions, and memories. And these are, it's in our uh, part of our brain called the temporal lobes. So there's an area uh, that's called the hippocampus. And I'll never forget Ms. Connor first teaching us this uh, concept uh, in this area of the brain. So the way that she would teach it to us and the way that I was to remember this was it's a pink hippo running across campus with a sign that says, I remember. And what this area is, is it's a place that can consolidate the memories. Um, it takes your short-term memories and consolidates them into long-term memories. Now, this is connected to a part of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is a primitive area, but it's an area that does mediate or control our fear and emotion. This is why fear and memories are connected. Also, it com uh, it's connected to this uh, area called the entorhinal complex. Uh, which integrates smells into uh, the uh, amygdala as well as the hippocampus. This is why animals rely on smell. You know, there are certain scents that they smell out there and can raise fear and pheromones and, and it, it plays a role into uh, memories. This is why you have a smell that's very, that, you're, that you remember from your childhood and it brings back memories. That's why, that's how it's working there. So when a person experiences a traumatic event, this area, the amygdala, becomes more active, right? And because it's involved with memory, it becomes, it becomes hyperactive, and this can cause us to now have flashbacks because we can recall these memories that have been strongly encoded by these signals, and people have this fight-or-flight response whenever they're exposed to the stimuli because this area now is hypersensitive to anything that reminds them of that event. These systems are completely um, out of whack. They're away. So if, if let's say normal response is supposed to be on a scale of like one to 10, right? And let's say now you've been exposed to a stimulus, which has been very traumatic for you. Now, imagine if you, every time you saw that, instead of going from one to 10, 10 being the absolute worst, it goes straight to a hundred, right? And now you're having uncontrollable uh, symptoms. You're having sweating, you're having shaking, your voice starts to shake. Um, your vision starts to get a little blurry, bright lights uh, start to get a little bit brighter, you know, and then you start to have this, this fight or flight response every time that you're exposed to it. And the way that people are treat the way that people treat it is uh, initially was uh, systematic desensitization where you uh, over time expose a person to that stimulus in varying increments, right? And so then the response becomes less. What they found now is that they they're using substances which were previously uh, uh, made illegal. Uh, they were scheduled substances. So uh, MDMA um, is casually known as ecstasy. Um, it stands for methylene, doxymethamphetamine, but MDMA, ecstasy, uh, people call it molly. They've been using that to assist in talk therapy because they show, they've shown that it allows people to talk about topics that may be traumatic and it does not have that same response. Also, they've been using psilocybin uh, for mushrooms. Uh, those are uh, used, uh, huh. known as uh, magic mushrooms. But what they've shown is that it can somewhat reprogram those areas and make them less sensitive to those external stimuli. Uh, there's also a medicine that uh, we use. It's called clonidine, or not clonidine, excuse me. Um, it's called mini press. Um, and it's a uh, uh, medication that binds to the blood vessels. And in order for us to have a fight or flight response, uh, what we feel, the, the reason that we become so shaky and jittery is because our blood vessels constrict. They're constricting and sending blood to our 
uh, muscles that we need. So they send them to your arms, your legs, they send muscle uh, blood to your brain, send blood to your eyes, because these are the key components that we need to either fight or run. We need it going there. When you take the, the medicine uh, mini press, it, uh, it disables those blood vessels from being able to constrict as much. What they've shown is that on PET imaging, which shows the brain functioning in real time, they've shown that it decreases blood flow to the amygdala, this area that mediates fear and new memories. So it's a medication that helps out a lot with post-traumatic nightmares, which blew my mind when I found it out because I was like, you know, I found out that they had a medication to help with nightmares. And I'm like, how in the world can a blood pressure medication stop nightmares? But it decreases blood flow to those areas and it makes it less active. Hmm. Wow. That's crazy. So exactly. And that's why I love it because you find out little things like this and it's like, man, and then you have people that come to you and they pay you to tell them this stuff that, that interests you already. And it's like, you're, you're in hog heaven. You yeah. already enjoy learning about it and to tell you guys about it is nothing. And you're paying me good money to do it. So I love yeah. my job. Yeah. So my, old real estate agent when I moved out here to California, he is the co-founder and he talks to me about it all the time of um, brain science group. And they're going through clinical trials right now, but it is the, uh, I can't remember the word you said, but it's the mushroom. Oh yeah. Uh, psilocybin. Yes. Psilocybin medication. Apparently. Yes. So, um, kind of funny. And then I wanted to go back like with all the athletes, it's really good to see a lot of the athletes in the NFL speaking out about, um, you know, mental health. And I, you know, for good reason, it's probably coming from a lot of the concussions, you know, that they, Absolutely. Uh, and I think, and I think mental health is important just in general. I, I, I might be biased, but the brain is the most important organ in the body. Um, when you have athletes like Naomi Osaka, who would rather take a break than to subject themselves to more torture and can lead the way. And now other athletes are following her lead. I think that's very important. And it leads to something that is uh, a movement that we need to be encouraging. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of changes that we haven't seen before in natural human history because of the internet. You have people that are trolls that go out there and say all types of nasty things, give people death threats, things that people otherwise wouldn't say to another person's face. And these things rewire our brains whenever we're getting likes, whenever we're having comments that are positive, whenever we have comments that are negative, it rewires our brain. It releases our brain releases reward chemicals whenever we have positive stimuli occur because it wants us to continue to do that. And what you've seen now is that a lot of social media has been uh, altering our brain chemistry, whether we know it or not. So I'm very much thrilled about these athletes taking a stand and being the person that advocates for their peers, because I believe that the athletes need to advocate for themselves. And I advocate for the athletes as well, because a lot of the athletes, especially in the NFL, they're the same demographic as me, they're, you know, black males and in, in medicine, healthcare disparities are very real. And for a lot of these people, they get kind of swept under the rug. People think, oh, this guy has millions of dollars. What does he have to complain about? But that's unrealistic. Yeah. And that's kind of scary. Do you think that now in you know 2021, the NFL has taken this serious and brought this to the forefront? What are your thoughts on that? I think yes and no. I think yes, because they've been forced to, because people were committing suicide and it was very gruesome and horrible. And when you see your favorite star going out like that, it's terrible. Uh, 
I think they have a long ways to go in terms of the money that they've been giving the athletes and their health care. I think they've been going, they need a, um, they need, they have a long way to go as far as allocating that money, who's qualifying for that money and acknowledging that the sport is inherently dangerous. I mean, football is very entertaining and it provides a lot of memories. It provides a lot of opportunities for people, but this is an inherently dangerous game, especially at the level of the NFL. You have the world's fastest, strongest men running as fast as they can into each other. Concussions do not only occur because of head to head trauma. It can occur from a body blow because it's going to still transmit that energy to the brain. And the brain is a very soft organ contained within a very hard organ, the skull. And so it can rub around any type of way. Uh, So I think they really need to continue to move forward, but they really need to have medical professionals that are unbiased driving the field forward and keep it independent of the entertainment value. Because at the end of the day, these are real human beings and the entertainment value doesn't care about the human beings. It's the money that's turned over and the money that comes in. So if you can't perform, somebody else can. And that person on the other end gets forgotten about. Yeah. How far do you think the study of concussion has actually come? Um, you know, I know there's in movies like Concussion with Will Smith and, you know, people are putting some emphasis on it. But if you were put, gonna, could put a percentage of on, how do I say this, on, on how far the study of this very common um, injury, what would it be? Oh, that's a little hard to put on a scale like that, but I would say from it's come a long way from not knowing what it is uh, to mm-hmm. now being on the cusp of having a blood marker to say objectively, yes or no, you did have a concussion. So I'll say it's come a long way. I would say we're not in the golden age yet because we don't have anything that can prevent it from happening. Mm-hmm. And we don't have those blood tests yet, but we've come quite a long way. So I would say on a scale of one to 10, if 10 was like the utopia of we know what it is going to prevent it and all of that, I'll say we're probably about 40%. What advice would you give to residents and fellows in neurology about getting into the study of concussions? Oh, it's a wide open field. If you're a sports fan, if you love uh, any type of athletic activity, uh, even if you're just a, a person who wants to support the troops in the military, wonderful opportunity to get in and serve your country, especially for people that don't want to join the military and actually go and fight or do have the military obligations. It's a wonderful way to serve your country uh, and you're really contributing to the well-being of, of humanity and uh, to people that really need it. So I would say, yes, absolutely. Now, for some people, they might not care about sports, might not care about some of those other things. And I would say, well, you know, that's that's fine because not everybody's going to enjoy it as mm-hmm. much as, like I said earlier with research, if you're doing something and you don't find any pleasure in it and you're kind of it's kind of pushed on you. And it's work. And everyone knows when you're just going to work, you're like, uh, this again. But if you really enjoy what you do, then you can find a lot of pleasure in it. And those are the people that typically find the breakthroughs, the ones who are really up late at night thinking about it because they're just like, man, that problem is really, you know, I just wish I knew what to do. Um, What could I do about this? Uh, Man, what if I did this or what if I did that? Those are the people that are going to drive the field forward, not somebody who's just forced to be in it just because. Yeah. Are, are there any um, are there any subspecialty interests that you think you might want to learn or pursue in the future, or are there any 
other specialties that you're really interested in or would you go back and change your specialty if you could um right now i would say so i have a lot i have a wide wide interest in in neurology i think potentially sleep would be one that i would want to learn a little bit more about because we know with concussions the system that cleans our brain well we even know what the system is so i know you guys i'm I'm sure you guys have heard of the lymphatic system so like your lymph nodes they swell up when Mm -hmm. you get sick well, if you put a G on the front of that name, it's called the glymphatic system. And this is a system that cleans out our, our brain at night and it cleans out a lot of the waste products that build up. And what we know is that a lot of these uh, problems that occur with our brain, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, as people know, there are a lot of waste products that build up in our brain over time when we sleep at night, cleans out the toxins so that we can, when we wake up, we're refreshed. That's the reason that you feel refreshed and knowing how this system works and knowing how it doesn't work when things happen like concussions can be the difference in preventing dysfunction of that system and allowing it to clean up our brain and uh, being able to prevent some of these uh, diseases or disorders. So I think sleep would probably be one. Yep. This is the, podcast version of researching on WebMD. Now I'm getting all nervous. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, you know, the further you get out from it, you know, the brain, uh, the brain and the human body at large is a very resilient system. So your body recovers and it's just about you being one, not getting exposed to what caused it before. You don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're having repeated head trauma or you're having repeated injuries because those can compound and create more problems. But right. Over time, as long as you take care of yourself, you know, your body does heal. So there can be a lot of anxiety regarding that. But I would say as long as you're not in that environment where it's continuing to make it worse, then that's better than it continuing to get worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. What a interesting thing, because it's such a prevalent thing in our society. Uh, I was just talking to my cousin who was in a car accident and she suffered a humongous uh, concussion from that. And, um, you know, from falling off a horse. And I mean, she's had a few in her life and, um, and the things, and they don't, the symptoms don't happen right away. It's down the line. You slowly you slowly see and, and you question, was it because of the concussion? Was it because of this or that? And, um, you know, uh, sometimes you wonder if it's too late. You uh, know? Absolutely. And you, you get a lot of people that come in with questions and that's what I enjoy being able to give people the answers Yeah, and being on their team and, and the, the diseases are our enemy. And for me coming up with the game plan to help, parse through those fine details and eliminating things because sometimes it is and sometimes it's not but everybody's different every accident is different yeah yeah definitely is there a particular case or something that you would say was the most interesting type of case that you've worked on um i have i have quite a few uh but i'll tell you the most profound uh, experience that i had in in residency Uh, so uh, being in jacksonville florida that's where i did my residency 
we were in the South and the South is also known as the stroke belt. And I had a lady who came in on Chris, I call it Christmas Adam. A teacher gave me that uh, indirectly. So I just kind of took it from her. So, you know, Christmas Eve is the 24th and Christmas Adam is the 23rd. Uh, so I was working is my PGY two year. It was my very first time that I was away from my family for Christmas ever, ever in my whole life, always had been able to be around my family for Christmas. But that year I got the short end of the stick and I got scheduled to work on call. So there was a lady who came in uh, who was the matriarch of her family and her family discovered her on the toilet. And she had gone to, she was talking with her, her kids. So like all of her kids had come into town to stay at her house. And she said, I have to go to the bathroom. So she went to the bathroom and about 30, 45 minutes passed and she didn't come back. So uh, one of her sons went to go check in on her and noticed that she was weak on her right side, had a facial droop and was having some uh, babble. And it just scared the mess out of the family. And so they got their sister and the sister said, we need to get mom to the hospital ASAP. Uh, this was probably about nine or 10 in the morning. So when she came to the hospital, I recognized almost immediately that she was having a left uh, MCA stroke. So middle cerebral artery, but on the left side of her brain, because the left side of the brain controls language. Uh, I started to do my exam, but that's one of those things where you kind of see it and you, you know that it's, it, you know where it is based on how you localize where it is in the brain. So I took her back. I gave her this medication called TPA or test, tissue plasminogen activase. It's, a, it's an analogous to Drano. So if your drain stops up at home, you know, you, there's two things you can do. You can put Drano down and dissolve it, or you can put a snake down and pull it out. Right. And so essentially with this lady, what we did was both of those things. So I gave her the medication that dissolved the, um, the, the clot. And then we also took her back to get a, to, to get a thrombectomy. So they put a wire in her femoral artery, went all the way up to her brain and pulled it out. Uh, so when I saw the lady, she basically was having like baby babble, you know, that's the way that she was uh, speaking to me. So later on that day, I was kind of going on about my whole day shift it was a 12 hour shift. And then at the end, one of my attendings that I talked with, told me to check in on her when I was discussing the case with her. So I went up there and I saw this huge crowd and there was just so many people around and someone had gotten shot and killed earlier that day and people were in the parking lot really crying. So I thought it was this, this was their family. And it wasn't, it was uh, my patient's family. And the woman recognized, she said, oh, Dr. Robinson, Dr. Robinson. It was like, oh, you know, how's your mother doing? And she said, oh, she's doing good. And I was like, is she talking? And she's like, yeah, and I'm a big golf fan. So I did the Tiger Woods fist pump. Uh, and so then I went into the room and I saw this big, tall guy and the guy was with her and it was her son. And it reminded me of my older brother because my brother is six, uh, six, four and I'm like five, nine, uh, you know, on a good day. So uh, it was uh, you know, kind of really analogous to like my brother. And like I said, he's the matriarch of, my, uh, of her family. She was black as well. And so I went in there, I talked to her and I asked her, I said, hey, do you remember me? And she said, yeah. And she, her voice was a little raspy. And she said, um, you know, I said, OK, you're going to be you know, you're going to be OK. Uh, you know, she need to rest. And so two days later, the lady uh, left the hospital completely back to normal and she was able to walk on her own. Wow. One, one year later, um, that same day, I called her because I was out in California with my family for Christmas, finally. And I called her back and the lady first didn't recognize who I was. And then we only, we, we started talking. I said, Hey, you know, I'm the doctor, you were having a stroke, you were at home, you're on the toilet telling her details that only I would know. And eventually, you know, we, we kind of um, just kind of started talking and her voice cracked up a little bit. And, you know, I'm not gonna lie, you know, I was tearing up a little bit too. Uh, and uh, she said, you know, 
I, I never, I didn't get your name and I couldn't remember, but she said, you know, you saved my life. And, you know, I wanted to tell her she was the first person's life that I actually had ever saved. And it wasn't, um, you know, by mistake, I knew exactly what was going on and I really trusted my training. And, uh, you know, she uh, was doing really well and her daughter was so thankful. And then um, right before I left Jacksonville to come out here to California, I called the lady and asked her, um, you know, to see if she was still living. And she was. And she said every time that she takes her aspirin and her Plavix, she thinks of me. And <laughs> I really was so proud of that because it really reminded me of my family. My, my grandmother's not here. And my grandmother's cousin, who was like a second mom to me, she passed away from Alzheimer's disease. And when I was a child, I just remember thinking, like, I, I wish that my family really knew what was going on with her. Um, but, you know, things have come full circle because look at where I am now. I'm saving somebody's life on Christmas. So if I couldn't be with my family, you know, at least I could save Christmas for somebody else. And that's uh, the most profound story that I that I had. And I always carry that story with me. Wow. Wow. What a story. What a great way to end the podcast. Um, Dr. Robinson, I am so excited that I got to talk to you and Travis, thank you for jumping on and being so candid with, um, your medical history. And, um, you know, obviously thank you for your service as a veteran. Um, totally appreciate that. And Dr. Robbins, we will definitely get you back on. Anytime you want me back, I'm more than happy to talk and you know give give people some uh, insight and some hope and hopefully make it look like it's a great job to have because it is. <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you yeah. guys. No, that was of cool. Course. I appreciate. It. Well, have a great okay. night, guys. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And a big thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast could not be possible. If you would like to be a guest, go to www.pacificcompanies.com. Thank you.